it's been a journey. So I've been doing the podcast now for five years, and I've, I've just created this life that I absolutely love. Spring bear in Montana, it's so fun because bears are like our entry level into dangerous game. You know, it's it's like with any wild game. If you don't like it, it's probably either your butcher or your cook, you know, and there's a way to cook everything. Everything is so protected, and there's all these rules to keep you safe, but then you get to go into the wilderness, and you get to dive in, and there are no rules. It really builds good character. And I think of all the good backcountry hunters I know, they all have good character. Like they're, they're good people that can handle tough situations. This is Brian Barney from Eastman's Elevated, and you're listening to The Wild Initiative. Put down your latte and pull on your boots. Our culture needs people that are leaders and not people that are waiting for somebody else to show them how to do it. Those fields of tofu, that was formerly habitat for wildlife. You're killing off wildlife by being a vegetarian just as much as a hunter when he kills a deer. I'm like, well, you see that bush right there? (laughs) There's your bathroom. (laughs) My dad wears a Levi jacket. He sits in front of a sagebrush and he tells me the best camo is hold still. Not to Donnie Vincent this, but be relentless in everything you do. Don't crap out. Go back to the truck with excuses or whatever. Okay, assume I get a deer. How do I cut it up to fit into a Honda Civic? Just get outside. Just get outside and go. Because once you do, it's all gravy from there. Hey, this is Zach Griffith. This is Hannah Barron. This is Jason Phelps of Phelps Game Calls. Hey, guys, this is Cody Rich from the Rich Outdoors podcast. What's up, guys? This is Chad Mendez. You're listening to The Wild Initiative. Hey, y'all, welcome to another episode of The Wild Initiative, brought to you as part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Y'all, today I am sitting down in the home of the one and only Brian Barney. <laughs> um, I, you know, I was just, we were talking just before this, and I was saying, I was looking for the podcast we recorded together, and it, you know, I you had had me on Eastman's Elevated, and um, I swore up and down that we had recorded a podcast other than me being on yours, and I couldn't find it. And it just occurred to me, I'm like, I've never, all the times I've talked and hung out with Brian, I've never actually had him on the podcast. So immediately texted you, and we scheduled a time, so I'm glad to be down here 
uh, recording with you. Oh, yeah. Worked out great. Um, yeah, like you say, we've hung out together and hunted together and then spent time at that Western Hunting Summit. And uh, I would have swore the same thing, that we had recorded more podcasts than this. But we just each get busy with our own lives and uh, own podcasts and things. And pretty soon, time gets gets away from us. So, no, I'm glad you called me. Well, and I think, you know, the times we've hung out, we've sat down and we've talked about strategy and this and that and hunting. And it, it almost feels like you've recorded a podcast just with the conversations. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones you really wish you had a mic on, you know? <laughs> oh, I know. Some of those authentic conversations, when you're really diving deep into elk hunting and strategy, uh, as a podcast host, you kind of get done with those conversations and, and wish you would have hit record, you know? But it's just the way it is. We have had some great conversations. Well, and, and how, many, how many times has this happened to you where... You know, you hop on the line with someone or if you're doing a remote podcast or whatever it is, you sit down, you start talking with them while you're getting the gear set up. You end up talking for an hour and then you're like, oh, I better start the podcast. You're like, crap, that was like all of the good stuff just got talked about. (laughs) You're like, how is the how are we? You can't recreate that. That's the that's the worst part, you know, is like you'll you'll have these great conversations and all you'll hit these great topics and touch on things and you'll go back you're like man i want to talk about that on the air mm-hmm. but like how do you, re- you you can't really recreate that authentically yeah well in in podcasts it's all about authenticity and so those authentic conversations like that make for the best podcast but it's also before you hit record when you're talking <laughs> back and forth and so a couple tricks i'll do is i'll uh uh, start talking with somebody and then say, hey, you mind if we just take off from here? You've done a great job of explaining this or we had such a great conversation about this, but that can get tricky too, you know, as, oh, yeah. as, as uh, people don't always want to be on the record when they're not recording, you know, but <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I have some great conversations prior to podcasts or leading up to or with buddies. And I, I think it's just the way it is. You just try to capture that lightning in a bottle when you can, you know? Oh yeah. I think uh, I, it almost... It almost makes me want to more often like have, you know, I record on this Zoom recorder and they've got the little microphone attachments for the mm-hmm. top. And sometimes, you know, you just want to kind of keep it in your pocket all the time and just have it ready, you know, not put on the headsets, nothing like that, but just take it and like kind of set it down off to the side, hit that record button, let the mic pick up what it picks up mm-hmm. and uh, and go from there. I think I think I might have to start doing that next time I know I'm going to just be in a group of people and kind of pick up a little more of those authentic spur of the moment conversations. Well, and it, it invites people into those conversations. Like they, they get to listen into them and, and that's really what a podcast is, but it, you're right in, in that, you know, you have a lot of these good conversations that you wish you could capture a good subject matter. And, and you, you also stated it perfect, which you can't really recreate it. You can bring it up, but every conversation is unique. And so, you know, you can make the best laid plans for a podcast, but it doesn't always go in that direction. And you have to go with the, with the flow of the conversation. Otherwise, things feel forced, you know. And so, uh, yeah, that's the challenge. But, uh, yeah, you can tell you're, you're uh, uh, a podcast host like I am, you know, always thinking about it, always trying to make it better. <laughs> Definitely. Um. So really to to kick things off, how did you get introduced to hunting? Like, how did you get your start in all of this? Mm -hmm. Like in the outdoors, hunting, fishing? 
Yeah, so I grew up in Western Washington, so the Pacific Northwest, and I grew up in a hunting family. Uh, it had gone on for generations, and we had a cabin that sat an hour or two away, hour and a half, basically, and it it bumped up up to National Forest. And and my dad and and his brothers and my grandpa, they just loved to hunt. But all of their hunting was done with rifles for black-tailed deer, for elk, and then you know, the seasons were so short that you didn't get much time out. And so, you know, I was introduced to it. I really liked it as a kid, but, you know, I had other things going. I had, uh, uh, I was really into wrestling, which taught me a lot of my great life lessons about uh, the the harder you work at something, the more you achieve. And wrestling, it took absolute dedication and commitment if, if I wanted to be good at it. So I worked really hard at it. So that was my focus throughout high school. And I enjoyed hunting, um, but it, it wasn't my main focus. But after I got done with like high school wrestling, it was like I needed a place for my passion, a place to put all this energy, a place to put all this work ethic I had built. And so, you know, of course, that goes into my job, into construction, but it's just different to have this passion passion that that you just live for that 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 burns hot that you're always thinking about and always trying to improve and so at a young age at 19 I moved out of western Washington and moved to Montana and um, man I just immersed myself in the outdoors any chance I had I I was uh, bow hunting I was rifle hunting I was shed hunting hunting bears and I just immersed myself in this backcountry hunting and I just fell in love with it and then through that you know, I started to look at these other states and other opportunities and, you know, I could travel for high country mule deer. I could go have these awesome adventures in the lower 48 that's available to all of us just through, you know, map research and studying. And, and pretty soon I started being successful on all these ventures because I worked so hard at it, you know, every facet of it from physical fitness to shooting to knowledge to, you know, all of it. And, and, uh, I just ate it up and it was like the harder I worked at it, the more I achieved. And then through that success, I was able to start writing about these successful ventures and these, um, these successful adventures that I, that I'd be on and, and start writing about it and telling people about it. And then through that, you know, able to get a chance to staff write for Eastman's. And that was after I'd been published in, you know, 10 or a dozen times just for free reinvesting in myself. And, um, so Eastman's gave me a chance and said, hey, uh, hey, kid, uh, yeah, you got any ideas for us for staff articles? And these, this was paid articles, you know, paid writing for me. It was a really big deal. And so so I mean, how, how old were you at about this point? I'd say I'm like young 20s, like 25, 27, somewhere in there, you know, um, had established myself as a, as a successful Western hunter and really through that journey started to fall in love with the bow and arrow and getting close. And, and then I just decided that if I was truly going to be successful with a bow, I had to commit to it. And that's where I went archery only and um, started chasing critters that way. And, and uh, yeah, so they asked me for some staff articles and um, I think they were looking for like two or three article ideas for upcoming magazines. And I think I sent them 30. Like I, it's just, it's just the way my brain works. I, I had so much information in my brain so much information that tied directly to the do it yourself, public land hunter, you know, that the, the things that had helped make me successful, I could share to other guys. And so, yeah, I, I, I was able to get these staff articles. They gave me a chance. It was well-received. I started to build an audience that liked to, to read my stuff. And then from there, I just kept growing it. I got same opportunity in filming, and I probably filmed my first 
10 episodes for free. It's all reinvesting in myself before I could finally start making money at it. And I had to build my skill set and be able to tell the story. And same thing with the podcast. I, I had the writing and the filming, but I just felt like there was so much more information I wanted to get out there. And so started the podcast and I was horrible at first, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like anything in life, you know, like you got to work at it to get better. And so, you know, at, at first, you know, it's just the art of conversation and working at that and working at interviewing guests and not speaking over them and getting the good information out, knowing when to step in or when to step back. And so, uh, man, it's been a journey. So I've been doing the podcast now for five years and I've, I've just created this life that I absolutely love where, you know, I run a construction company, but I'm able to take a break during hunting season and go chase my passion, uh, uh, chase my dreams. And it's still to this day, I am just... Um, I, I love it so much and I'm so driven to accomplish more and to do more. And I, I, I love the entire process of preparing for it, working towards it, going on all these adventures. Like it just means the absolute world to me and, um, people connect with it and been following the podcast and filming. So yeah, it's been this great venture. So a little long winded, but yeah, that's kind no. of my story. And so, uh, you, you host the Eastman's elevated podcast, but, uh, there's also, you guys just started, I want to say this last Last year, right? Uh, a fly fishing podcast as well. Mm -hmm. What's the, uh, tell us about that really quick. Yeah. So, um, so all the while of building these hunting skills and these bow hunting skills and traveling around, I also have this other love of fishing. And so I moved to Montana and the West caught the Western fly fishing bug. And so same thing there is like, if it's not hunting season, I'm probably on the river somewhere. And we have so many great Western rivers that sit right around us and, and so many adventures to go on floating these different rivers. And, um, I go back to the Olympic peninsula every year and fish for steelhead, um, um, I, I get to uh, uh, get to the salt and go chase flats fish. And so all these great adventures through fly fishing. And so I created this great thing through the hunting podcast and created this income through it. And I just thought fly fishing is my other passion. I'm going to start a fly fishing podcast and see where it'll go. And, and growth has been a lot slower. It's a niche industry. And, um, but you know, I, uh, had some great conversations. I've learned a lot and I feel like I'm getting better at that podcast as well. So yeah, we started that. We do, uh, two episodes a month, Eastman's fly cast. And yeah, it's been going great. So what would you say is, uh, the primary focus of Eastman's elevated as a podcast or like what, what do you try and achieve with, with Eastman's elevated mm -hmm. Eastman's elevated? Um, you know, it's a podcast for the hardworking blue collar bow hunters out there, blue collar hunters in general, Western hunting. And so I think what I bring to the table is, um, you know, I, I've been doing it for so many years and been consistently successful. And so I can help share insight uh, to guys so they can go have their own adventures and, and go improve their own hunting skill set to give themselves a good chance of success. And so, like, I think that's the main focus of Eastman's Elevated. I also like to talk about adventure hunting and, and, and the adventures available to everybody out there. And so I'd say that's the primary focus or that's our niche as a podcast is in improving the do-it-yourself do Western hunting and, and also telling a great story uh, of adventure and what's available out there. You know, one of my... Uh one, I was, I was hunting, you know, as you know, I was hunting Montana back in 2019 and, you know, I'd been on the podcast. I don't think we had met in person at that point. Um, 
pretty sure we hadn't ever met in person. And, uh, you know, I was out staying with Ryan and Hill uh, for a little bit. They were letting me crash at their place. Well, I recuperated my, my ankle. Um, and uh, I was like, you know, I should go say hi to uh, Brian Barney. You know, I'm, I'm in town. I go down and say hi to him. And I'm like, hey, man, you know, you want to you wanna grab a beer, grab some lunch? Like, yeah, sure, come down. And I don't know what the heck happened. But we went from one minute, we're sitting down. I think we were at MAP or something like that. We were somewhere, having a burger, having a beer. Then I blinked, and suddenly we're halfway up a mountain. <laughs> I'm, I'm in half of my camo, half of your borrowed camo with my bow. We're chasing elk. And I'm like, how did this happen? I'm supposed to be, like, recovering right now. And... It's, you know, again, I'm obsessed with elk and I'm out there hunting, but you have this infectious way about you that just draws people into hunting. And so it's, you know, it, it comes through on the podcast and it comes through, especially in person to where again, having a burger and beer, and then suddenly I blink and we're halfway up a mountain. And it was just one of my favorite moments from last year, also because it was the first time I'd ever gotten in on elk before, especially on bulls. And so it was an exciting moment for me last year. And I just thought that was one of the funniest things. Um, You know, I remember, I think, I think it was, you're just like, oh yeah, let's just go, let's just go do some glassing. (laughs) Like, like we're not, yeah, we're not going to go chase anything, but you know, I can give you some tips on glassing. And of course, you know, we're sitting there and, and we see, I, I can picture it still the exact spot, you know, we see them coming out and you're like, well, there's some elk there if you want them. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you, oh, you. Uh, that was a, that was a fun, fun moment though. And we got it, got it um, in on some and we, we ended up losing light though and couldn't quite catch up. I remember because we, we found that herd of batch, those like three or four uh that little bachelor group that kind of i think they winded us but they couldn't see us they weren't totally sure what was going on and then we finally found the entire herd and we, i remember we were standing there we're like yeah there's just no way we can get over there in time but that was that was i mean for an afternoon like a quick afternoon hunt that was uh, the most action i had seen in three years of elk hunting at that point <laughs> yeah that was a good go uh yeah that's what my buddy dan says he says uh, uh if i'm gonna hang out with brian it's always gonna be an adventure and you just never know what you're gonna get into <laughs> when you come down you may be into something today you don't know that so like um yeah so you came down we had a burger and beer and talked about going glassing and yeah you hadn't brought all your gear down you weren't really prepared to hunt but you did have your bow and you did have your glass and had enough and some borrowed camel for me and so yeah we went out glassing and um yeah glassed up bachelor her i think it was like three satellite bowls but one was a pretty decent six point well i remember we glassed up the one it was like this big open area and we're like okay there's one feeding down that we figured you know bachelor satellite or something we're like okay he's looking good we can go chase and i remember we were going after him and i think he was attached to the big herd we saw Mm -hmm. And as we were going up, there was this like weird little pocket over there that we didn't see until we got up there. Mm-hmm. And a whole bachelor herd or bachelor group comes popping up out. And there was some good, there was, there was a couple of, I mean, they were all five points at least. Okay. Um, and I, I remember there was one that we were looking at that was a really nice six point. And we tried chasing those and they knew something was off. They didn't, I remember they didn't see us. And oh man, my heart was pounding because I'd never gotten in on elk that close before. I think, um, 
we had a good chance to kill that bull. I think what happened was as we, I approached him with the wind, knowing what the wind was. And like you said, they worked down off that top onto our left side in that basin where Mm -hmm. I thought they were going to come down the ridge. And so our approach, we ended up being up there and having them to our left instead of in front of us, which then our wind drifted over and the whole situation mm-hmm. blew up. We had a good chance to kill that bull. It just didn't work out. But yeah, we um, we ran up a couple thousand vertical pretty quick up that thing to go chase those things. But yeah, <laughs> always an adventure and you have to be willing to, to capitalize, you know, when you do see those things in a spot. So yeah, we went after them and went and chased them. It's too bad we, uh, we couldn't get just a touch closer or loose an arrow, but it was exciting. Well, and it was one of those moments, like, it really didn't, I remember we were looking at that, and it's like, it didn't make sense for them to have gone over there, so, like, it, it like we did, I don't think we did anything necessarily, quote-unquote, wrong by going up the way we did, and it was pretty late in the day, so we were, we were trying to beat the clock, let's wait, I mean, we were hauling butt up there, you were hauling butt a little bit faster than I was, <laughs> I remember at one point I'm like, Brian, Brian, <laughs> Brian. I'm like, I'm like, holy crap, that guy moves up a hill fast. <laughs> yeah, I was definitely pushing your max pace up there. Let's top that. Elevation is such an equalizer, mm-hmm. you know, and then elevation and then pace, you know. And like you say, living and running in all these mountains, I'm used to running up those things. But yeah, to, to take you from a burger and a beer and a full belly <laughs> to straight up that thing after some elk. But that's how quick things can change. It was a nice bull. Yeah, we we got to team up again for some elk. There sure is some good elk hunting around here. Oh, that'd be a blast. I'm, I'm so excited this year and I, I'm also super excited. You know, I, I think I've commented this before. I got here just in time to also get, uh, get my residency for spring tags. Oh, congratulations. So yeah, it's like, I think my residency officially starts like mid end of April, something like that. So, uh, for like all the May tags, stuff like that. Um, I can, I, I get resident tags. I'm so stinking excited. I think I have to go get a, uh, like a, a release or a, a waiver from fish and game though, mm-hmm. because, you know, I, I didn't get my driver's license until, you know, a month later or something like that. And so I got to take my, uh, my pay stub in my first original okay. pay stub and like get a waiver. So then I can go to sportsman's and actually get okay. my license or whatever. You, you may be able to sign an affidavit at those, uh, like at sportsman's or at a sports store that you've been here for six months that legally connects you to Montana. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. Yep. I think there's an affidavit you can sign, but yeah, man, how cool. And you get to take advantage of spring bear. Um, mm-hmm. so spring bear in Montana, it's, it's so fun because bears are like our entry level into dangerous game, you know? And, and, uh, you know, for the do it yourself hunter, like a grizzly bear hunt just isn't in my future. It's not in my tax bracket and you got to hire a guide. If you go to Alaska, mm-hmm. there's no opportunities in the states and so for me uh black bears is where i cut loose and i love to hunt them with archery tackle and in close and and it is my dangerous game with a bow and arrow but it's so fun man we have different color phases and um great genetics big pumpkin headed bears and um different uh you know you're you're trying to find a decent boar but it's just fun in the springtime as their numbers are condensed at at certain elevations as they kind of follow the green wave up the mountain as the green grass grows and the snow melts and uh, it's just a great time of year to be out and they give us a couple months of prime time season and i only have one tag in my pocket so i know what i'm hunting every day and i can put (laughs) all my focus into it and so bears 
I describe it as 99% boredom and 1% thrilling excitement. And that 1% payoff pays for all my time out in the Bear Woods. So, yeah, I absolutely love it, man. Super fun. Well, and I, you know, anybody that listens for a while knows, like, I've, I've talked about this a bunch. I remember when I first started getting into hunting, I think it was, I want to say, like, my brother invited me on a dove hunt or something, like, way back in the day. And I... Uh, I remember going through the regulations, was figuring out how to get my license. You know, this is in California. And I remember, you, you know, you're going through the, I'm reading about the seasons. And like, I was really reading these regs and it gets down to like archery, bear. And I'm like, what? I'm like, what kind of mad, what kind of mad person goes after a bear? And I, and it's funny cause it pops up, you know, Facebook does the memories now and it pops up in my memories. I took a screenshot of that and made a status, and it's something along the lines of, like, talk about the epitome of, like, being a man, like, hunting a bear with a bow and arrow. And I just thought that was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard of. And now I'm like, oh, man, that's, like, that's my what I want to do. And I've been out a few times in California. I mean, we have incredible black bear populations in California, uh, mostly because you can't hunt them <laughs> with anything anymore um Mm -hmm. but up in like trinity county there's some amazing black bears and black bear populations i've gone out a few times haven't seen any success but i'm super stinking excited for spring season this year and chasing some bears and because it's just like it's where it started for me in my mind i think that's one of those things that like ticked off that box and i'm like that's so cool and uh, it's been a little bit of an obsession ever since, and I just haven't gotten out enough to to really get after it. It can be a bit of a black magic because there just isn't as many of them as ungulate populations. And so to find them consistently is tough to dial in their habitat they like and where they prefer. And so, you know, a lot of guys make a handful of trips out and don't see any bears and don't get any excitement. And it's tough to get enthused about it. But once you dial it in and you start finding those things consistently, I mean, it's way different than shooting a deer and elk. You shoot one with a bow and arrow. I mean... Every time I shoot one, I think, oh, shit, what did I just do? I mean, (laughs) they don't just run away. They roar. They bite at the arrow. They spin around. I've actually been charged by two of them that I put arrows through. So, I mean, it can get hairy really quick. Well, I mean, you are very literally poking the bear. There's a (laughs) reason that's a a, a metaphor or an idiom or whatever. There's a reason people say that. You don't poke the bear. You are literally going out trying to poke the bear (laughs) yes oh it gets really exciting but you know you you practice up i practice up with my pistol and build a shooting process and make sure i'm ready for those situations and those Mm -hmm. scenarios and it's it's really cool like archery it it comes down to to being you know cool calm and collect and being able to put a perfect arrow through that bear at a good yardage uh, but a lot of the excitement is spotting them stalking them uh, moving into them and and yeah you got to have your wits about you and you got to have everything right you know and so like it's a good backcountry test uh, it's entry level into dangerous game and it you know it, it it can turn sideways pretty quick and you have to be prepared for that but it's a great season to go find adventure you know and so man i i just i absolutely love chasing giant boars in the springtime and trying to make plays on them and they're really built for archery tackle mm-hmm. uh so bears are nearsighted uh they don't see far very well but like most animals they pick up movement really well but 
I mean, if I have a bear in a wide open meadow, if his head's down feeding, I can walk up on him on a, a wide open meadow and then I just have to freeze when he freezes. But the, the one sense that you have to beat on a bear is their nose, of course, and they can smell seven times what a bloodhound can smell. And just mm. for a reference, a bloodhound, if a kid gets kidnapped, a bloodhound can follow where the car drove from the scent coming out the vents and can follow a car of a kidnapped kid for miles. And a bear can smell seven times what a bloodhound can. So a bear can tell time by its nose as it smells things. And if you ever get busted as you're stalking bears or he's not there when you get there, you can pretty much guarantee that he caught your wind. And so it really dials you in to, uh, you, you know, all this is to build your hunting skill, to give yourself a better chance in the fall after elk, after deer. And it really helps you dial in uh, the mountain winds, the thermals and the directionals and how those work because it's, it's so important on bears. And so then you're able to transpose those skill sets into high country deer and into elk in the fall and, and into bears in the spring. And so, yeah, it's just uh, really good for the skill sets, really good glassing. Uh, you get good stalking on them and they'll spook from noise too. You have to, you have to be quiet moving in, but about, you know, when you shoot them with an arrow is a different deal, but I'd say, you know, they all have different personalities and about one in 10 that you stalk can be a little ornery. And so instead of running away, they're popping their teeth or standing up on you, you know, trying to get a better, you know, sight of what you are, you know. And so, yeah, it can, it can definitely be hair raising, but that's what keeps me coming back is the thrill of that. Well, it's, I feel like, you know, it, and there's a difference, obviously, between how people, you know, somebody that maybe grew up in Montana hunting was raised a little bit differently. But someone like me, like we'd go on vacation and, you know, we'd go camping, whatever, and we'd go bear watching and you go look for the bears. But literally everything in you growing up is kind of trained to like avoid the bears to you see a bear start backing off, you know, everyone, like everything in me that growing up was trained to like avoid this. And so it goes so, it's so unnatural. It goes against all your instincts to then stalk in on this thing and I think that's one of the cool things about it, too. It's like, for maybe a deer or an elk or something like that, it's, you know, it's like that's the allure of the dangerous game is it's, it's almost like skydiving or bungee jumping in that you know you're pretty, you know, you know you're going to be good for the most part. You know, you're prepared for it, but you're doing something that your body naturally tells you is wrong. Like, mm -hmm. You are not supposed to be doing this. You're not supposed to be stalking in on this predator. It's supposed to be stalking you and you're supposed to be moving away. You're not supposed to be jumping out of this plane. You know, you're supposed to be moving in on this thing. And, um, it's, I think that's one of the cool things about just predators in general, whether, you know, and there's a little bit of proving yourself, you know, mm -hmm. proving you're in top of the food chain here, you know, we're, uh, you know, whether it's uh, bear or even, you know, like lion, whether it's hunting, even coyotes to a certain extent, you know, they're a, they're a predator and uh, they're wily and it's, you know, it's, I don't know, it, it adds to that chess game of, of the whole thing, kind of proving yourself a little bit. Oh, it definitely is a proving ground. Yep. Um it, it is. You, you got to be so collected when shooting those things. And a bear's vitals is a third the size of a whitetail. So they take, uh, you know, a well-placed arrow. And so bears, I always want a closer shot on, be able to put my arrow exactly where it goes so I get a good shot on. So I'm not trying to trail a wounded bear or hurt bear, oh, yeah. which could be a really bad scenario. So 
um, yeah, you got to have your wits about you. And it's, again, it's that challenge and that chess match. And when you do finally get that stock, that um, you get paid back in that adrenaline rush that you get because it's off the chart. So yeah, it's super fun. I can't wait for springtime. Well, and I was, I was just talking with my neighbor about this last night. Uh, we were, uh, I just stopped over to say hi and talk to him about a few things. And we ended up getting into conversation about spring season. I was talking about bear and, you know, it's like, well, what all, I feel like one of the first things, like when you're, you meet a non hunting friend, they find out you're a hunter. One of the first, like invariably one of the first few questions I always ask is like, well, aren't you afraid of bears? I'm like, well, no, I'm more afraid of two legged predators in the woods than bears, to be honest. But, um, you know, then you tell them like, if you're, you're hunting bear, there's like, you eat bear. I mean, I know not everyone really eats bear, but like, I mean, we're both friends with Ryan and Hillary Lampers, and I mean, I'll tell you what, they make up some real nice bear. And uh, I think didn't I think Brian Call just recently did a whole series on making canned bear meat. Off to I, I still haven't gotten to watch that one yet, but I gotta admit, I really, really enjoy bear meat. Mm-hmm. Like, I know some people, you know, everybody complains about everything. You know, you hear one person, they're like, oh, I'd, I'd never eat venison, blah, blah, blah. Or then everyone else, oh, I can't eat bear meat. It's too greasy. I'm like, like shoot, I, I kind of just like everything. You know, I like, I don't know, maybe that's the challenge too, is experimenting and, and making something out of it that I really do enjoy. Mm-hmm. Like, I may not, I may not cook up javelina or bear or this or that and just eat it like a steak without marinating it or something first like i would a, a beef steak but you know it's uh i really enjoy the bear meat i've had and so mm-hmm. i'm looking forward to especially taking a, a spring bear where it's probably eating a little more greens and berries and a few less fall gut piles yeah yeah for sure they eat good in the spring yeah they are um you know it's it's like with any wild game you know if, if you don't like it 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 it's probably either your butcher or your cook you know and there's a way to cook everything and in bear actually the pioneers um uh, they regarded uh bear as their favorite meat and and the reason why is bear does have more fat content to it so the deer and the elk are so lean which is it's good but um you know you you can starve to death on lean meat. That fat content, you know, really helps the body, you know, burning that, that fat and that fuel uh, really helps the body out. So that's why the pioneers um, regarded it as the, the highest game meat and, and why Lampers and, and Brian Call like that meat. Now, for me, it, it's not my favorite, but it is good meat and it is edible. And so I'll grind mine in uh, sausage and things. And the thing with bear is it has to be cooked to 160 degrees. And so you can't have a medium rare steak, you know, it just doesn't work with bear. So therefore it gets a little overcooked and can get tough or uh, also mess with the flavor. So like I have mine usually in sausage. And then lately, I think last year's bear, I cut all into thin fajita meat and then we'll grill it up, um, you know, with some seasoning and things, throw it in a taco or in a tortilla. Uh, but yeah, I, I really like it. My family likes it uh, just because of the care that I take of those bears and then the care I take when I'm cooking it to to make it a good experience. And and yeah, I think Lampers and Call are really good at cooking that bear that, um, that, that would probably make it my favorite as well. But it, it's just a, a work in effort on on, on every game animal you kill to really use it up to its fullest and have it taste the best. And so, yeah, it's, um, bear is one of those things that I'm, I'm happy and I'm fortunate to get the meat, you know, when I am able to harvest a bear. 
You've got me thinking about like bear asada now. Like I'm yes. thinking like some some carne asada from bear would be really. That's solid. how I use mine up. That's yep. uh, you know, and I uh, who was it? Was it was it Ranella that got trichnosis really bad? Yeah. From Bear? Him and his whole crew got it from cooking That's... it over a campfire. Got <laughs> trichinella or trichinosis, or I think it's the same thing. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, uh, it can be present in bears. I've never had one tested with it. And, um, but you just always got to make sure that it's cooked real well. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's a bit of a mind trip when you kill a bear and then you're cooking this meat for your family. You have to make sure that it's cooked well done. So you do have to take other precautions. And, um, you know, it's not quite like cooking a blowfish or something like that. <laughs> but, you know, there is a danger with eating it where you don't you know that disease is pretty nasty when people get it and um so you want to avoid it at all costs so yeah i'm always cooking mine thoroughly uh you know when i'm eating it myself or serving it to anybody else for sure do you typically go get your uh bear tested as well i know some people will take it in and get it tested and and that way they're not as concerned Mm -hmm. other people are just like hey whatever as long as i cook it i'm good um yep uh, I test mine. Um, I'm just feeding it to my family that I want to get that negative test back to make sure that I'm not risking it or gambling anything. Mm-hmm. And if it, I've never had one test positive. If it did, I'd have to make that tough decision then and there. And I definitely, you know, I don't want any game meat to go to waste. And I definitely don't want any animal that I harvest going to waste. But in that same breath, like I have this responsibility to, to be, you know, to, to feed my family and feed myself uh, this clean organic meat. So if it does test positive, you know, it, it is predator control and it is controlling their numbers. And they do, they do manage for that in the springtime. And, and, you know, their populations have to be controlled like ungulates because black bear, uh, they do the most damage to elk calves and deer calves calves and calving grounds in the spring like they get a bunch of those things because they use their nose and they can find those calves hidden in the grass so it is a good thing to take them out and i never want to waste any meat but if it did test positive i mean it's the same thing with cwd and that stuff Mm -hmm. going around um you know it hasn't been tested to transfer to humans but it has been tested to transfer to chimps and so there is a possibility so you know, if I have something that tests positive, no, I'm not going to feed it to my family. I'll figure out something else. But yeah, it's a personal choice everybody has to make. I, luckily, I haven't had to make it yet. So this is a, this is completely different topic. Uh, but I was I was having a conversation uh, with a gentleman from uh, Montana Wildlife Foundation, and he was telling me we were, we were talking a little bit about the the whole controversy over wolf reintroduction and and you know, the delisting of gray wolves. And, and we were having a bit of a conversation about that. And we got onto the topic, and I'm just curious if you heard anything about this, is that wolves are actually more likely to target deer and elk with CWD. Um, and I don't know if this is true, but this is something like I want to find, I think I need to find like a biologist that's informed about this and actually talk about it. And I don't know if you've heard anything about that at all. You know, I think I have heard something about it. I mean, it sounds like a real pro-wolf argument. They like to tell you that wolves are just taking the weak and just taking the, you know, the CWD deer out. But wolves are killing machines and they're they're a pack and um, wolves can't help themselves. I've seen them get into elk when they were first reintroduced and kill all of them and not eat anything from them. Just leave them dead up there just because they're hunters and they're running away from them and they're predators. So I have a hard time believing that they can smell CWD and that they're 
they're trying to harvest those animals. And these animals, they live with CWD in their system for, for months or years. And I'm not an expert on it by, yeah. by any means, but those deer, they still live really healthy for a long time before they start showing signs. So, I mean, I believe it if they're showing signs and they're wandering around in circles, they're making easy target for those wolves. But I'd have a hard time believing that the wolves can smell it out of the herd and are targeting those animals. But like I say, I'm not oh, a biologist yeah. or an expert. That'd be a good question for a biologist and, and get a few points of, uh, of view. And, and I, I like wolves and I like having them around. I'm not anti-wolf by any matter, but it definitely sounds like a, a pro-wolf argument. Like I've heard the oh. argument that because of the wolves, the aspen trees are coming back in the park. Oh my well, they're gosh, coming back because they killed all the elk because the elk aren't rubbing on the aspen trees. Like there's a lot of ways they can spin it to make it pro-wolf. And, and uh, I, I just don't sit in that camp. So I have a hard time believing. Oh yeah. And it, it's, uh, and even I was talking with him and, and it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a pro wolf conversation. It was it was one of those things. It was we were just talking back and forth about the arguments made, and he said he's like some people have said, and he was definitely he was definitely of the opinion like they need to be managed, regulated, and fairly liberally hunted. But they you know they have a place on the landscape, yeah. but they need to be controlled. And that was just one of the topics that came up, and I was just curious if you'd heard anything about it, but. Um, I, I, yeah, I think it would be one of these days I'll, I'll get, uh, I'd like to get a couple of biologists on and maybe do like a round table about stuff like CWD and, uh, I mean, even trichinosis and bears and, and kind of those more scientific biological questions they, that always come up in these conversations. And I'm typically like, well, I don't know crap about this, but I'm going to tell you my opinion. <laughs> Let me tell you my bro science. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Let me tell you about this thing that I researched in a Facebook group. Yeah, on yeah. The exactly. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Yeah. I, wolves are a tricky one. You know, they were reintroduced in the park and they've just constantly moved the goal line on us. At first, they just wanted oh, yeah. a pack in the park and they wanted these kind of numbers. And as they started to populate and they started to move locations, I mean, they decimated some herds like the, the Elk City herd went from 20,000 to, you know, you can hardly find an elk in that country and same yeah. with the 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 northern greater yellowstone herd you know that used to be a premium tag that you could go hunt in the late season where they don't even give tags in the late season anymore that herd went from 20,000 elk to below 2,000 elk so Yeesh. they definitely decimated some places but yeah it's better now that we can i mean it's tough when when your hands are tied when the the federal government says no you can't hunt them you can't trap them you can't control their populations you know and and they're not letting the our state biologists manage wolf populations like they let us manage our moose our sheep our goat our deer our elk so you put that in the hands of biologists and science but yet wolves is something that's that's uh, regulated by the feds and the so it, it's been a tricky thing for sure and and like you said i like having wolves on the landscape i like hearing them they're the ultimate predator they just have to be controlled where um you know where hunters can still have possibilities to hunt deer and elk every year because if you just let wolves go unchecked uh they're going to take that opportunity away from us and pretty soon you know you're not going to be able to drive to the park and see elk or see deer mm -hmm. you know so uh they definitely have to be controlled but yeah that's a dicey one man it's a tough and and people have such a connection with wolves because of dogs and the connection that humans have with dogs and um 
So, yeah, it's a tricky one. Uh, I like having them on the landscape. I love hearing them. I uh, love seeing them. They are the ultimate predator. I have a ton of respect for them. But in that same breath, they need to be controlled so we still have hunting opportunities. And and um, so, yeah, it's a dicey one. And if I have one more person, and I think I've talked about this before, but if I have one more person share that stupid YouTube video, uh, you know, I think you touched on it about the aspen trees. It's the one where wolves change rivers and... I'm like, dear, oh my gosh. They, if nothing else, the instant I knew that whole video was just baseless BS was the second they started calling, they showed these herds of elk and, and all this stuff. And they're like, and the wolves control the deer populations. And, and every time they're talking about deer, they're showing elk on the dang video. And I'm losing my mind. I'm like, <laughs> and I swear it's once, once or twice a month, somebody, that video goes around again, somebody sends it to me, and I think everybody's seen it at this point, one way or the other, but it just drives me nuts. I'm like, these people, and, and I'm going to generalize a little bit here, but the people that tend to argue the most against hunting in other, whether it's social, political, whatever, situations, are the first ones to be like, science! We need to follow all the science. Oh, but not with hunting. It's like, oh, science says we need to wear three masks now. But, but, science, oh, no, 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 no. But I have feels about these animals, so uh, we can't follow the science when it comes to the animals. And yeah, that's me generalizing, whatever. But <laughs> Yeah, well, it, there's a lot of truth to it. People like to believe the facts that support their argument in it. And um, yeah, people feel certain ways and express those feelings. And yeah, it's just tough. I mean, we under, we are under attacked as, as hunters and as sportsmen. I mean, you can see all the, the newly elected officials, all the new bills that are coming up where they think they can manage the game better than our biologists and better than the state departments that they want to pass rules that the public votes on. And, and the deal is, is a lot of this, public that's voting is is uninformed you know mm-hmm. a lot of them are living in in cities and not dealing uh you, you know not not having this interaction with these animals you're just getting them to vote based on on feelings or on a poster board or on a on a on a video that shows how great the aspen trees are doing and and that's just not the truth of the matter and so yeah it's it's one of the good things about social media is is us hunters have been able to band together and fight a lot of these bad bills that have been coming out that they're trying to pass over on us that we we have a good voice you know we're able to stick together so it's one of the good things but um i mean i don't like to be uh doom and gloom or that but i mean i do feel like a a lot of what we enjoy is under attack and and the conservation model for the united states is so great where it offers these opportunities for us average guys our blue class working class guys to be able to go out and have these awesome adventures in the the most gnarly remote country in the lower 48 you know in this country it's unnerved you know the country it doesn't care about your well-being, you know? And so, like, so much of our life is so protected nowadays. We have our house. I go to my water tap, and I can turn on water. You know, driving in my car, I've got airbags and seat belts and protection. You know, everything is so protected, and there's all these rules to keep you safe. But then you get to go into the wilderness, and you get to dive in. And there are no rules. Like, your wood sense and wood savvy is what keeps you alive back there. Your decisions you make directly affect your safety, you know? And so, like, it's one of the beautiful 
beautiful things about our conservation model that that's available for all of us out there. You don't have to be a wealthy guy. You know, you can save your pennies and be a blue collar carpenter just as I was or as I still am and and go to these these gnarly places like hunting high country mule deer. Um, you know, there's so many opportunities, but like I, I always compare that cause it's one of my favorite hunts of the year, but you get to go hunt this extreme environment where humans aren't meant to survive. Like it's up where goat and sheep live. Like it's in these Alpine basins with shoots and, and, um, you know, above 13,000 in Colorado or above 10, 11,000 in Montana, Wyoming, Nevada. And you get to go up there and, you know, it's like mountaineering with a bow. Like not only do you have to, to, uh, uh, climb to the top of this mountain and get back down like a mountaineer, but you have to climb up there and live for days on end and, and then try to get within a stone's throw of this wary mule deer that has thousands of years of, ele- uh, evolution, like avoiding mountain lions and predators. Like they're really crafty, you know, they, they, their instincts are really keen and, and it's like this ultimate challenge that you have to prepare all year for, but it's available to all of us. It's one of the beautiful things, man. And there's there's all these opportunities in every Western state and all these different units. If you're just willing to put in the work, you can go have this amazing adventure. And that, to me, is the coolest thing. And that's what we have to fight to protect. You want to talk about an example of, you know, whether it's equal rights, equal opportunity, uh, the wilderness. I mean, it is... Truly, like you said, accessible to everyone. It does not matter who it is. And like, don't get me wrong, like uh, the hunting community tends to be fairly white. <laughs> like, I'll just say it. Um, and there's some awesome people. Like uh, you know, I know Brian's had him on. I've had him on. Uh, I was talking with someone the other day about uh, Orlando Childs. He is. Uh, wild dude he found out about randy newberg from after watching rap videos it was a whole thing um but i love seeing guys like that coming in because it does show that anyone you know from whether wherever you're from whatever your history is this is something that is accessible to you and it is an equalizer like this is you know yeah okay you can pay you can pay a guide or an outfitter and there's nothing wrong with this, but you can pay a guide or an outfitter to effectively carry you in on horseback, set up your camp for you, find the, find the elk or find the deer. All you're doing is at this point, you know, pulling the trigger when they point you at it, they're packing it out, they're processing it and you're taking it home. And if that's what people want to do, that's awesome. But when you're talking these DIY backcountry hunts, you know, whether it's a solo hunt or you and your buddies when you're out there really doing it yourself, it, it, the wilderness is no respecter of fi- your, your background. It's no respecter of how much you make. It's no respecter of the relationship you had with your parents. It's no respecter of anything but your capabilities, your skill, your preparation, and the work that you are willing to put in. Talk about an equalizer. I mean, it does not matter. None of that stuff matters when you're when you're in the woods, and it's such an amazing thing. It's the ultimate. Oh man, uh, I'm getting all I'm getting all pumped up right now. <laughs> yeah, me too. Season's coming, man. Oh, so yeah, gosh. no, for good reason. No, and it's the ultimate challenge. Like uh, you find success rates. You know, they go from somewhere five to to maybe twenty percent in really good units. Well, even twenty percent is being successful once every five years. Like it is the most difficult challenge to take on for me. That's why I fell in love with it. Bow hunting the backcountry. It it demands you know 
absolute dedication and focus to even give yourself a chance at success. And so like, I, I, I love every facet of it. And I love like us guys in modern day and age, like there's this lack of passion, you know, and guys just um, start going through the motions and aren't happy in life. And that's why there's all these problems with depression and, and um, you know, anxiety and, and this modern day and age. And uh, I think guys just need a place for their passion. And I don't think backcountry bow hunting's for everybody, but I guarantee everybody that tries it or takes on that challenge, it it um, it, it hooks a lot of us. And it's just pure fun. It's so exciting. There's something that ties back to our DNA, to our survival of of, of being a human. Uh, you know, comes from from being a successful hunter or a successful gatherer. And so that buck fever you get or adrenaline rush you get and you don't just get it when you shoot at animals you get it seeing them through the glass you get it making stocks like sometimes when i'm making stocks my legs are shaking so bad i can hardly place my foot like there's this there's this excitement and this thrill that ties back to to our ancestors uh i can't imagine like two hundred thousand years ago like being able to bring home a deer to my tribe and be able to feed them like that feeling so there's something that directly ties to our successful uh to to being a human directly ties to that excitement and that thrill and once you feel that and feel that adrenaline rush it's unlike anything and it it hooks you and 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 makes you like once you see the payoff then you're willing to walk through broken glass to go find that payoff again you're willing to to train year round and put all these miles and all this preparation into maybe one shot or maybe one shot you won't even get but yeah man it's just like this awesome endeavor that i just (laughs) love doing and that that you love doing and that um you know a lot of the people that we hang out with have have fallen in love with it's awesome that's the most the most miserable fun you'll have yeah (laughs) yeah yeah it's tight too fun and i mean it is it's like you bring it such a cool point like we are genetically wired like to look at an animal and we're genetically wired to understand that our survival depends on that animal. And, you know, we can distance ourselves from that a lot. But I still think that's why people, you know, driving down the road in Yellowstone will cause an in, almost a, a crash to slam on the brakes when they see a single buffalo out there is be, is that excitement. You know, yeah, there's some excitement about it just being a unique thing that maybe you've never seen before. But we're genetically wired to look at that and think our survival depends on that creature, whether it's conscious thought or not. I mean, I think there's those of us now at that point that are, are, you know, whether we're on vacation or not, look at every animal we see and being like, I'd place that shot right there. (laughs) Like, you know, shoot, I could be at Disneyland right now and see an animatronic thing and be looking at that be like, oh, yeah, no, it was a three-quarter shot, you know, three-quarter angled away. I'd want to move over here. (laughs) Like, it's... It's a, it's a sickness. Um. It is a bit of, a bit of a sickness. No, you're right. Uh, it, it's just such a fulfilling endeavor that I'm so oh, yeah. glad that I found it in my life. Like to have that that ultimate challenge to 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 take on. It, it just keeps it keeps me so excited about life and and um, the possibilities. And and then like you say. I mean, to have something that haunts you every thought, to be at Disneyland and to think of where you're going to place this arrow. <laughs> like, you know, you just, you keep thinking about this stuff and, and really, you know, you get done with these adventures and it's all you can think about is being back up there and challenging yourself and getting another chance at it, you know? So yeah, I, I'm just really fortunate that I found what I love to do in life and I'm able to structure my life to spend a lot of time doing it. And uh, man, I wouldn't have it any other way. 
um, how many situations in life, just the average person are you put in and where a decision you make, and I'm not talking about like a decision you make might get you fired from your job. Like, yeah, that'll affect your livelihood and like down the line. But like a decision you make to some extent immediately affects your survival. Like you're, you're talking about you're up there for days at a time often. You're making decisions in dangerous territory, often with, you know, especially if you're after spring bear. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, whether you're chasing predators or whether there's predators around, you know, you're walking a ridge, you're in snowy weather, and you're not totally sure about your next step. You're setting up a tent, and who knows when a tree might fall. Like, you're making decisions that very directly affect your survival. You know, and maybe I'm dramatizing a little bit, but how often in life are you put in those situations where your decisions matter? Like really, really matter. I mean, I don't think the average person, you know, short of their decision to keep their car in between the lines on the road, that's about as critical of a decision as they make every single day. You know, even in their lifetime, how often do people really get to make critical decisions that are to some extent life and death? I just don't think it happens. Yeah, I don't think you're dramatizing it. It's it's real when you're out there. When you're out there in grizzly bear country and there's so many things that can get you, whether it's uh, steep country and you take a spill, whether it's uh, uh, the weather. You face the harshest weather out there, whether snowstorms, rainstorms, lightning is super dangerous, you know, the – um, so, so there, you're right. Your safety is at the forefront of your mind. And if you want to really feel primal fear, go on a backcountry hunt. Like you'll feel it and you'll have to face it and you'll have to make that decision of whether you want to hike back and give up to your truck or whether you want to see your way through it. And when you do see your way through these obstacles and these challenges and we're wired for fight or flight and, um, like you don't get faced with that too much in life, but when you're in the backcountry, you get faced with fight or flight. You get to feel real fear, you know, and you get to to see what you're made of to either take on that challenge and con- to continue because uh, your goal, you know, exceeds you know this fear, or your drive exceeds this fear, or this uh, uh you know this delayed gratification of knowing that you can see your way through this adventure and being able to uh, overcome it and harvest an animal, you know, those feelings uh, that it, that it means everything to you in life. So you see your way through these real difficult challenges and you face your fear head on. And, and uh, really it's these lessons I learn in the backcountry and challenging myself. I, I'm able to transpose those skills into real life. And all of a sudden things aren't such a big deal. And, and it's one of the reasons I can run a successful construction company. It's one of the, you know, I can handle all these things that come with all these challenges and look at it and go, no, this isn't a very big deal. You know, being on the top of that 10,000 foot Ridge when a lightning storm's coming in and I'm going <laughs> down and my life's faced with real danger. Like that's a real problem. That's a, that's a real fear, but you know, messing with somebody that didn't show up for work or something like that, we'll get through it. It's not that big a deal, you know? And so it's really given me, you know, I've learned a lot about myself and I've built a lot of these skills in the backcountry that I'm able to transpose in real life. And then I'm able to pass down to my children and, and tell them what a big deal is or what a tough deal is, you know? And so it definitely gives me a lot of perspective in life and has given me a lot of confidence moving forward in every facet of my life and getting away from your life. You're able to reflect on it more. Like when you're in the everyday grind of work and emails and making this call and I'm driving here and I'm working there, you don't get time to reflect upon your life. 
life, but you get it back there for a 10-day adventure and you buy, you're by yourself, you get to think about your life and the moves you're making and how you treat your kids and how you treat your wife and how you handle your job and how you handle things and you don't get to hide from yourself. Like it's all right there for you to evaluate. And I actually come back like a, I come back a, a, a better person with uh, being able to reflect upon my life and make these changes to, to, to make a more enjoyable, better life for me and my family and be a better person. And part of it is like just being able to, to go on these adventures and challenge myself is like this, you know, I, I'm able to do what I absolutely love with every fiber in my being. And so when I'm out there and I'm enjoying it, when I come back, I feel fulfilled. I feel like I got great perspective on my life and I'm able to apply that in my life. So, I mean, it's like I, I, I may be overinflating the, the benefits of it, but for me, it has absolutely changed my life for the better. I, I really don't think you are, are in, overinflating at all. If nothing else, it's, you, you know, maybe we're not selling it enough because, you know, uh, again, I'm completely biased and because this is my passion. But I think it's with anything is the more experiences you have, the more perspective you have. And you can bring that perspective to other, uh, to other parts of your life. Just like with business where, you know, I, I, I work in marketing. I run a marketing agency. And I used to work at all these big agencies. And now I'm, I'm working with companies in the outdoor industry. Uh, we were talking about Western Hunting Summit earlier. I came in, I talked with Ryan and Hill about Western Hunting Summit. I'm like, hey, why don't you guys do a pre-sale? And they're kind of like, a pre-sale? What's that? <laughs> and this is something I learned, and I took that perspective from something I did in the music industry, brought it in to find a way to improve what I'm working on with them. If it works in business, why doesn't that not work in life? Of course it does. The more experiences you have, the more more perspectives you have, you can then bring into it just broadens your your experience for the rest of your life and your perspectives and how you handle things. Um, and again, it just, you know, once you've faced a bear charging you, the losing a client just doesn't seem nearly as bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Yep. No, and it, it builds such a toughness, you know, to, to be successful, you have to be able to endure all these things and you have to be able to put in the time and, and endure the long miles and the, the climbs and not finding animals. You have all these challenges that are so difficult that you have to face head on and, and overcome. And so through overcoming those challenges, like it, it really builds good character. And I think of all the, the good backcountry hunters I know, they all have good character. Like they're, they're good people that can handle tough situations that I'd want to have next to me, you know, in a, in a firefight, you know, or in a, in a wartime scenario. Cause I just know that they can, they can handle that stress and can handle that pressure. Uh, they just carry themselves different. So yeah, it builds so many great characteristics that, that I really aspire to be. And uh, it just shapes and harnesses it and creates it for me, you know? And so I just love it. It's, I don't know. Do you, do you think we've, we've, we've sold people on, on the benefits of hunting in this episode <laughs> at all? <laughs> Can you, know, I mean, I know, I know we're clearly not very passionate about this, but uh, you know, I guess if you guys, you know, want to go hunting, maybe it's something you should look into. I don't, I don't know. 
And it's just so <laughs> fun, too. It oh, is geez. so thrilling to hike all these miles and put all this effort in the preseason all into this backcountry hunt. And then you get on this backcountry hunt, and it's a grind. It's that type two fun where it's not fun all the time. It's not fun climbing that hill day in, day out. You're sleep deprived. You're really pushing your limits physically and mentally. Um, you know, but to, to get a stock on a mature four point muley on a mature six point bull or whatever your target species is target size, but to find that animal and to get this chance and you get this chance to be able to stock in on them and it, there's no guarantees and the decisions you make directly are going to affect whether you get a chance at this animal, but you, you have all these skills and all these things you've thought about. And right now is your time. Right now is your time to prove it and go all in and to make this stock on this muley and have to make a hundred decisions. And they all have to go right to give yourself a chance. And it doesn't happen that often. But to have this chance, this excitement, this thrill to go make a play on an animal like that and try to get a perfect arrow in them, man, it, it is just the absolute ultimate. And I always say it's worth my price of admission. Like I'll drive 24 hours and I'll hike for 10 days straight. And, and sometimes you don't even get that chance, but to get that chance to stalk that animal and try to make something happen, like, um, man, it is so thrilling that to me, it doesn't get any more exciting. Like it, it is the absolute funnest thing on planet earth. It's well, and it's, it's one of those things, you know, you, the, what, what's the old saying? You wouldn't have the peaks if you didn't have the valleys. Oh, yeah. And I mean, hunting, you know, hunting in and of itself, is like it's it's that mountain in the middle of a flat field like you can get those highest of highs there but it's such a thing of extremes where you also get those lowest lows where like i'll admit there have been hunts i've been on where i'm hurting you're not sleeping well you know especially those backcountry hunts you're you're not sleeping well you're hurting you're probably not eating appropriately you you have these moments of excitement and like the, those peaks also make those valleys a lot worse sometimes. And, and it's just, it's such a thing of extremes. Cause like you will go from not, like you said, not having seen anything for days and you're working your ass off and you're just beat down and you're like, why? And you're half of the time questioning, why am I doing this? And then you have that one moment that again makes Split second, even if you don't, even if you don't kill that animal, you don't, you know, you're not able to stick it, whatever, but you have that encounter, that moment, and you're like, this one moment, this split second, I'm spitting, I'm getting so excited here, apparently, it makes those, you know, six, eight, ten months that you've been out back shooting your bow in the, the freezing cold weather that you've been running, you know, going out and running every morning to, you know, get that cardio up that you've been lifting, that you've been working, that you've been e-scouting, that you've been out in the woods, you know, glassing, all of that comes together. And again, what, how many things on this earth do you put in that much work for that pay off in, and that, that pay off in that short of a, like small of a moment that it's like, Talk about value, like encapsulated in such a teeny tiny package. That's that moment of satisfaction, whether you just have that encounter or whether, whether you do get to, you know, put a bullet in something or stick it with an arrow. Like, I mean, you know, that's, that's the diamond ring right there. You know, that is the, the, the precious freaking jewel that's worth more than, 
you know, this whole, you got, you can have a whole pile of stones over here that, yeah, maybe you can do something with, but you have this teeny little diamond. What's worth more, you know? And, ah, okay. I'm getting all, I'm getting all pumped right now, man. I, I think you're spot on. It's been too long since I've been out in the woods. (laughs) That that payoff is something special for sure. But I think you bring up a good point is that you can't have the highs without the lows. And so bow hunting is a lot of lows or hunting in general. There's, um, you know, you're, you're gonna fail and you're going to have to face failure time and time again. And you talk about the lowest low, like I, uh, I filmed this hunt this year for, uh, it's, it's, uh, Eastman's hunting TV You find it on YouTube. It's open country bucks. And so, uh, prepared for this hunt all year long, had this hunt I went on and, and, uh, it was tough. I didn't, um, I went with my buddy Dan and he got a couple stocks early, a couple chances at bucks, but I went five, six days and I hadn't got a stock. And I, I was down to my last day there on the trip. And, I found this beautiful buck. I mean, it's just my dream buck. Deep forks, heavy, older deer. He had the stickers out both sides, and I watch him go around this cliff in bed. And so I went and got my buddy Dan. I said, hey, come film for me. I, I found a buck. I got to play, you know? And so I make my best play, and I come above the cliffs on this buck, and there was actually, like, two different tiers to the cliff, so I had to go to the lower tier. When I peeked over the top, that buck was five yards down below me, and I could see his horns there, uh. and he was twisting his head. But I couldn't come over the top or expose myself. He knew something was up. He had heard a little gravel above him and so i was just waiting with my bow and could just see the tips of his antlers and and then he spooked and he spooked around the corner of the cliff and i went to the top of the cliff my buddy stands filming the whole thing i get over the top and he's less than 20 yards down off that cliff exactly where i want him and i i draw back and i mean um, i pride myself at being clutch in these moments and as soon as i draw back and i find my anchor that buck starts to roll and turn and starts to go and i throw my pin on him and i smash my trigger and I punch one right over top of his back and that buck I have to watch him go off and this is my last day of the hunt and um, you talk about Lois Lowe somebody that really prides themselves on being clutch in those moments that put so much into this hunt into the training like um I turned on the camera right there. And if you want to see my lowest low, I did a five minute interview about my lowest low. There's a little comedy in there about selling my bow. And then <laughs> I didn't want to pack them out because his stickers were going to get caught on the brush. You know, there's, there's some comedic relief in there too, is that's sometimes how I handle difficult moments, but it brought me to my lowest low. But the deal is, is I went back and I regrouped. I, w- I had to go home as my last day of the hunt. My buddy Dan couldn't come back down with me. And I actually had an elk hunt lined up that I put off and I said, no, I'm, uh, I'm going back for this mule deer i'm gonna go find it was a tough hunt and so i went back on this weekend trip and you talk about challenges that trip my uh my dirt bike couldn't even get me to the trailhead it broke down i had to jog 15 miles back to my truck to pick up my dirt bike it would have been a great time to give up on that hunt but i didn't i put on my backpack and i hiked throughout the night to get to the trailhead that was my starting point and then (laughs) way back up into this wilderness back in there and i started traveling the wilderness and i got on a decent buck and in the end i ended up passing that decent buck because he wasn't what i was after and i kept looking and finally i found another buck and he had two stickers and this time i got it right executed a perfect stock filmed the whole thing myself and a perfect shot and perfect execution and i got that redemption i was after (laughs) like that life lesson like picking myself up from being at the very lowest being at the bottom being at failure and then being able to to tell my story and tell my podcast audience talking to him in real time that hey i failed this is what happened but i'm not going to let this define me i'm going to go back i'm going to find success 
success. I, you know, Tom Brady doesn't make every touchdown pass he throws. Like he fails too and has to pick himself up. And even though I pride myself at those moments, I made this error, this mistake in there, executing that shot, punching that trigger off. And there's a million ways I could have played it, but I knew what I did and I knew I did it wrong. And I captured that in video and to come back and find that redemption. I can tell you, it's like one of the sweetest feelings. Like I felt my entire life, you know, like just being able to pick myself up from that and challenge myself and and come back and be better. But if you're going to be a bow hunter, you're going to be a hunter. You are going to fail. You are going to fail on stocks. You're going to fail on shots. You're going to fail on, on, on locations that you've e-scouted. Like you are going to have to face failure and pick yourself up and be better and believe in this skill set, believe in the work that you put in and then prove it to yourself that you can be successful again, you know? So man, it's just a, it's a beautiful journey that I absolutely love. And it's only going to serve you for the rest of your life. You know? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Oh, it's totally it too. Yeah. All right, man. So if somebody came up to you and was like, oh man, I saw one of your hunting films. Like I've always wanted to do that. You know, I've just, I, but I, I don't know anyone that does it. I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up doing this. I have no, no background, no history with hunting, but I've always wanted to. I don't know if I can do it though. What what kind of encouragement would you give that person? Like what advice or inspiration would you would you pass along to that person? Yeah, I mean the 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 beautiful thing about now is we're living in this information day and age. So when I first started, there wasn't as much information about areas or about tactics. There's so many courses and schools that if it's something that you're really drawn to, you just have to dive into it. You, you just, and if, you know, a mentor is great, a buddy that you can team up with, that you can go do it with, but good partners are hard to find. And sometimes, you know, to start the journey, you just have to start yourself. And it's like, seek out these mentors, think, seek out these, these guys on social media that'll answer your questions. Seek out a pro shop and get to know those guys in the bow shop, why they're making twists on your string, why they're tying your peep in this way. Like just immerse yourself in it. And and there's enough good people out there that are willing to share information. And there's enough information out there that you, in today's day and age, you can get started without a mentor or by yourself. You just have to decide it's something you want to do and dive into it and commit to it and just try to learn. And I mean, I have, um, I have guys on the podcast, like I've got a couple beginner podcasts coming up because I think they bring a unique perspective to the podcast. And like, uh, uh, you know, I have this guy, uh, Michael Chan, that's going to be on the podcast. That's this great guy that's um, been hunting mule deer for two years and found success this year and dove into it with his bow. And so to be able to, you know, his perspective is so fresh because he's learning everything so fresh as an adult. And so he brings like this great perspective to the conversation, you know, stuff that I forgot about that was 25 years ago, he brings up and it's like, oh yeah, that is a major challenge. So I, I think it's just, you just got to dive into it. It, it. If you're drawn to it, dive into the information and start planning that first hunt, whether it's in your own state, whether you're going out of state, but just find a hunt that, that you can start to prepare for and get ready for because the information is out there. And I know it's scary to take on new challenges, to take on things you don't know, but you almost got to let go of your, your male ego of not knowing how. You got to go into a bow shop and go, hey, I've never done this before. I don't know how to do it. And that's really tough to do. You got to go to a successful hunter and go, hey, I, you know, I've never hunted elk. Like, what do I? So you, you got to 
kind of uh, uh, eat some of your male ego and some of your <laughs> pride and ask questions and start and realize where you're at. Realize that you know you are starting something that's that's really difficult that you don't know anything about. So you, it isn't one of those deals that you pretend it or fake it till you make it. You just own up to it and just go, I am new to this, but I want to learn. And I'm diving in the information and I'm, I'm going to put in the work to be able to have one of these adventures because it is available to all of us out there now. Absolutely. Um, so if folks wanted to follow along with what you're doing, find the podcasts, uh, all that good stuff, where can they find you? Yeah, Eastman's Elevated is a podcast. Uh, Eastman's Flycast is uh, the fly fishing podcast, so they can follow me there. Uh, I also have an Instagram page at Brian Barney. And, um, yeah, I usually post things up there as far as videos that come out on YouTube, things of that nature. Uh, yeah, that YouTube channel, it's Eastman's Hunting TV. It's on um, – I uh, find that on YouTube. And then you can find a handful of my hunts on there and then a handful on the outdoor channel. And we've got more to release. I've got, I've got this one coming up that was an awesome adventure. So this was another early season high country mule deer hunt, but it's in this gnarly mountain range above 10,000 feet. And it's in early August – and so the temperatures are, are high 80s up and through there. And this mountain range doesn't have any water. You've got to pack all your water 3,000 feet to the top of this mountain to be able to survive. So we're packing 12, 15 pounds of water. And we're this is a, a backpack exclusive hunt where we're living out of everything we can carry like it, that which is the... The, the truest form of backcountry hunting and and we grinded on this hunt and I finally got a chance and had Dan over my shoulder and had this buck in his bed and he stood up and put a perfect arrow into him and killed him and um, but it was hot and uh, that day was our last day in the mountains as we had another backpack trip planned but we were out of water that morning or we had 16 ounces a piece and it got hot like we were on the border of dehydration and pushing what our bodies were really capable of and I killed this buck had to butcher him, get him hung up in a tree in the shade, and uh, then we had to make it back to the truck. And man, I haven't been that dehydrated since my wrestling days. Like we were really <laughs> pushing our limits, but we captured the whole thing on film. Went in the next morning before light, and I packed the deer out from the other side, like a like a better place to pack the deer out. So that film will be coming out. So I've got these amazing. Uh, films that I've, that I've documented these hunts that show the true adventure. And so I'm just really excited for those to come out. So yeah, you can follow along on those and everything I do. But yeah, man, I absolutely love it. And I really appreciate you having me on. No, of course, man. And I'll make sure I linked all those channels on the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. So make sure y'all check that out. Brian, I always have such a great time talking with you. I'm glad we finally got to lay down an official, uh, an official podcast. So. Yeah, likewise, man. I appreciate you. All right, y'all. That'll do it for this episode of The Wild Initiative. Make sure to check out the show notes page at thewildinitiative.com. Get links to everything we talked about in today's episode. That'll do it for this week. Looking forward to next time. But until then, I hope this episode inspired you to get involved, get outdoors, and plan your initiative for the wild. Thank you for listening to The Wild Initiative. Please take a moment to leave a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher and head on over to thewildinitiative.com to get show notes, check out the blog, gear discounts, other podcasts from the Wild Initiative family, and more. 